much. It's a real, it's a, just a delight to be here. So thank you. For, I know you had nothing to do with it, but uh, it's great to be here. Uh, a few weeks ago, my son Nate introduced me to the wonderful, amazing, scary world of Chat GPT. I never heard of Chat. GPT. I'm not what you call cutting-edge social media. I don't tweet, Instagram. I've never posted on Facebook. <laughs> but if you know ChatGPT, it's, well, it's, it's, it's what AI, artificial intelligence, this, this vast store of knowledge. I can't explain it. I used to be an English high school teacher. I sent my students an essay, which might be something like, what are the main themes of, Ham of Shakespeare's Hamlet? She goes home, does her research, and writes her essay. Now, all she has to do is log in to ChatGPT, type in the question, what are the main themes of Shakespeare's Hamlet? And out comes, in a moment, the essay. Which is scary, I think, for schools and unions. How do you test people? My son, they typed in this question. What are the features of the books of Michael Rater compared to other Christian writers. I mean, who's, <laughs> I've written a few, but I'm not Tim Keller or Philip Yancey. I mean, who's, who's heard of Michael Rater, for, for Pete's sake? Well, here's what it said. Michael Rater is a, <laughs> a well-known Christian author, speaker and teacher around the suburb in which he lives. No, while every author has their unique style and approach to writing... There are several features that set Michael Rater, his books apart from other Christian writers. That, that's pretty, pretty generic. That's anybody. Then they identify five features. They are practicality, biblical focus, humor, relevance, and, and, and accessibility. On the last, it said... He uses simple language and concepts that make his books easy to understand, even for those who are not familiar with theological jargon. And, I, and this is in detail. And I'm reading this and thinking, yes, 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 yes. I mean, it's, it's, I couldn't write this. It knows me better than I do myself. This is scary. It knows Mike Rader. Well... What can be known from the internet about Mike Rayler, it doesn't know me any more than you know me. Doesn't know my character, doesn't know my future. If it's not written down on the internet, it knows nothing about me. Chat GPC, for all the knowledge, isn't God. Great to be here. But what do I speak on this morning? Well, maybe a sermon on being thankful for six great years of blessing. That, that'd be a good thing to do. Or maybe something which helps us to look back, look now, and look forward to the future. Look, just look at our, the bigger context in which we find ourselves as a church on the Gold Coast in 2023. The bigger picture. A bigger context. A context-changing very fast, isn't it? 
in our world's view of the church in Australia. We're facing opposition like we've never faced before in our history. Every day in my prayers, I read this great little book called This is the Persecuted Church. It lists the 50 churches in order where they face the most persecution. Number one, Afghanistan. 50, Malaysia. Beatings, arrest, death. We're not there. Far from it. We still got it pretty good. But things are changing. I read a great book last year by Steve McAlpine called Being the Bad Guys. If you've read Being the Bad Guys, it's a really good book. Point, point is, we were once the good guys. It's good to send your kids to Sunday school. And script, that was, that was, it was good to get some Christianity. It was, that was good for them. We're now the bad guys. Religion ruins everything. Things are changing. There are attacks from without and compromise from within. I'm Anglican. I attend a church, well, of a denomination that is sold out, not quite en masse, to the world. When it comes to questions of sex, marriage, gender. Vast ways of my church. See, in the past, we believed the Bible tells us what to do and what to believe about sex and gender and marriage. Now in my church, the world tells us what to do and believe about sex, marriage, and gender. And even even as it's just sold out en masse. Attacks from without, compromise from within. Just like the early church of the first century, which John writes to in this letter. In chapters 2 and 3, he speaks of seven churches. Historical churches in Turkey back then, but also seven is, I think, symbolical in the Bible. It's the number of completion, the seven days of creation. In Revelation, there are seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven seals. It's a symbol of all the church everywhere throughout time. And that church then, like now, faces attacks from without and from within. Seven churches. Two are committed by Christ unreservedly. Two are rebuked unreservedly. Three are given a mixed review. Some face attacks from without, like a little church called Smyrna. Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. And some attacks from within, like Thyatira, who has a false prophet called Jezebel, whose teaching misleads my servants into sexual immorality. Without and within. That's our context. So as you face the next six years, and the six beyond that, into the future, how do you respond? Do you become anxious, or do you feel reassured? Well, let's turn then to Revelation 4 and 5 for the answer. Revelation, as you know, is pulling the curtain back to reveal, to make known what you can't see. Uh, like most of the men in my family, I have prostate cancer. Level 1, so not too serious. But I go from time to time to have an MRI to see what you can't see from the outside. That's Revelation. 
Or you get a birthday present all wrapped up. What is it? You rip off the wrapping paper. Oh, it's a pair of socks. My dreams have come true. You, you see what you couldn't see. That's revelation. The curtain's torn back. The lid's taken off to see the reality behind what you think is real. This isn't real. The real reality is behind that. And revelation shows us that. And it begins with God on the throne. Revelation is a picture given to the future. God gave it to Jesus, to an angel, to John, and to us. Begins in chapter 1 with a spectacular vision of Jesus, mighty and glorious. Then the letters of the churches. And now 4 and 5, which sets the scene for all that will follow in the book. And it begins in verse 1. John sees a vision of heaven. A door's open, he sees heaven. Some years ago, a friend of mine went to the UK on a holiday, and he went to a place called Duxford, where there's an Air Force base, a museum there, an Air Force museum from World War II. It was a, just a heartbeat of the war against the Luftwaffe in World War II. There was an underground bunker. You had to have a password to get in back in the 1940s. You go down the steps into this bunker, you see there, it's all there in the museum, you see there this huge table. It has a map of Western Europe and, and Great Britain. Above the table is the controller who sees everything. Around the controller, the, the, the table, are these mainly women receiving reports from spotters up and down the East Coast who are spotting oncoming German aircraft. On the table are these little wooden blocks which might represent uh, like 50 enemy aircraft. They move them around the map so you can see where the, the enemy are. And one wall is a clock and, and the colour changes every five minutes. So five o'clock it might be blue. 505, red, 510, yellow. That tells you how recent the information is that's coming in from the spotters. On the other wall are all the assets available. Squadrons, how many planes, degree of readiness. And there's a controller who sees it all. Where the enemy aircraft are, how recent information, what's available. It, it, it was simple and it helped Britain win the Battle of Britain. Brilliant. I heard this from my friend and I thought to myself, that is the best description I've ever had of heaven. Heaven is the great cosmic control room. And there's God, the great controller, who sees everything. But unlike the guy in Duxford, God doesn't just respond to what he hears or sees, doesn't just react to it. God actually plans, ordains what will happen. He purposes it. He makes it happen. Then John tells us what he sees and hears, and it, just, it blows his mind. For some so, all he can do is describe it in this crazy, amazing pictures and images. In fact, I think the revelation you meant not to visualize what John sees, but to kind of to feel it, to feel the impact of what he sees. And he sees, first of all, what must take place after this. Here is an announcement of the future, not what God wants to take place or intends it. This will take place. This must take place. 
That's what he sees. He sees God on the throne, full of power and authority. Then the pictures come thick and fast. And you're meant to make, I think, in your mind, connections. He has the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. He, he's brilliant. He's beautiful. He's glorious. Around him, a rainbow. And you think rainbow, you think, well, Noah, there's, there's mercy after judgment. Around the throne are 24 other thrones, like smaller thrones, smaller authority, smaller powers. They could be angels. Maybe, the, maybe there's a church. 12 plus 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. Maybe they, they symbolize people. I'm not sure, but they're around the throne. And they're dressed in white. They're pure. He sees lightning and peals of thunder like Sinai in the Old Testament. Awesome, terrifying, amazing. He sees the blazing spirit of God and a sea of glass with all these things reflecting of it. It's the sound and light show to end all sound and light shows. He sees then four creatures, a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel saw an angelic being with the face of a lion, ox, man, and eagle. I mean, how would you feel if you were John? Terrified, overwhelmed, awestruck. Spellbound, speechless, mesmerized. All God's creatures, both heavenly and earthly, and all doing one thing worshiping their Creator. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Every creature owes their existence to God. Every atom and molecule, every spider and bee and moth and fly, every salmon and trout and shark and whale, every kookaburra and sparrow and swallow and raven, every panther, cougar, lion, tiger, every pig, sheep, every dog, cat, every horse, Every Serb, every Chinese, every Paraguayan, every Kiwi, every Maori, every Aussie, every Russian, all owe their existence to God. Now, that could be just a natural process of procreation. You, know, you put a rooster in the hen house, put a standing with the mares, and bingo. Adam and Eve had kids, they had kids, they had kids, and so just, we just procreate. But no, it's purposed. God ordained one day that a man called David Rater meet a woman called Anne Moore. God ordained their marriage. God ordained for them a child, a boy. In the womb, God protected that boy and brought that boy to birth. In that boy's early years, when he was frail and fragile, God watched over him. And in God's time, he brought that boy to rebirth, to spiritual birth. Most true of Mike Rayler, it's true of each and every one of us. Made, created, ordained to exist by God. So we all owe him honor and worship. So see, first of all, in Revelation 4, 
the supreme sovereignty of God. That's Revelation 4, God on the throne, ordaining all things. Then we turn the page to chapter 5. And John tells us two things he sees and two things he hears. In chapter 4, we had heaven with a wide-angle lens. Now the lens begins to zoom in to God's hand, and in God's hand, a scroll. With writing on both sides and sealed so tightly, it can't be broken. So the first thing John sees is something that makes him weep. He's just heard that you'll see what must take place. This scroll contains all that must take place. All God's plans for history right to the very end, but it's sealed so tightly no one can roll it out. A scroll was just tightly sealed. It's just, just, just parchment. A decree not proclaimed achieves nothing. You must have it unsealed and made known. How will that happen? How will God's will in heaven be done on earth? How will this come into effect? And John doesn't know how. He's trying to find someone to break the seal and bring these events into being, and there's no one, and he just weeps. I have a son in Philadelphia. So I just find American politics just fascinating. I'm, I mean, it's like a soap opera, isn't it? These large-than-life characters, insurrections, scandals, endless impeachments, and, and they all make their great promises, as, as all politicians do. I'll make America great again. Albo promised us a better future. Now, the politicians achieve things. They, 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 they get things done, but <laughs> they can't change things like that. They can't. No one can. And that could make you despair, couldn't it? And John weeps as he sees just the world hurtling closer and closer to some kind of way, whether it's nuclear or environmental abyss, like a runaway train with no driver at the engine. Just what's the future hold? Just chaos. So he weeps as he sees a suffering church, oppressive governments, 50 of them. He sees a compromised church. And he weeps because no one can open the scroll. Then he sees something to make him worship. He sees Jesus and the two dimensions of our Lord's character. He sees a lion, the majestic beast, drawn here from Genesis 49. But Jacob had a son called Judah, and on his dying bed, Jacob made a prophecy about Judah, that, that from him would come a man who would rule the nations. Jacob said, Judah is a lion's cub. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute come to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. One will come, strong like a lion, and always submit to him. He'll be the root of David, one of David's sons and descendants. He'll be triumphant, he says. 
But here's the great paradox. The lion will rule and triumph not by mauling his enemies, but by dying for them. This lion is a lamb. We don't sing very much nowadays the songs of Graham Kendrick. Some of you won't even have heard of Graham Kendrick. Very big in the 80s. He's kind of 80-ish and not too big today. But he wrote a great psalm back in the 80s called The Servant King. Began with a line, From heaven you came, helpless babe. What a paradox. King of heaven, helpless babe. And then I think one of the, one of the greatest lines in all of modern Christian songwriting. Hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. Fantastic line. Creator, Lord, powerful, the lion who died at a cross to save his people. And because he did that, he can break open the seal. He is worthy to do that. Or in Paul's words in Philippians 2, because he humbled himself to death on a cross, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him all authority over all things. He now rules history. The slain lamb has seven horns. He has all power. Seven eyes. He sees all things. He will ensure God's will is done on earth as in heaven. It will happen. He rules history. And here's, here's our future, beloved. Verse 10, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. That's our future. His children, his priests, reigning in the new creation. And God knows exactly the month, the day, the moment that will happen. It's ordained and Christ will bring it to pass. He rules all things. That's what John sees. And finally, what John hears, he hears two songs, or really one song, sung by all the angels and all God's people, to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. For he died and rose again and rules. I still live in Sydney, and uh, there was for a while there in Sydney a men's convention. So popular, it ran over three weekends. Two or three thousand men every weekend up in Katoomba. I'd never been. But God said, Mike, you've got to go to men's convention. You've got to go. They didn't say because the talks are so good, that, that they were. You've got to go, Mike, to men's convention in an auditorium to hear two and a half thousand men sing. It's amazing. It is spine-chilling. Two and a half thousand blokes. It was great this morning, by the way. You sang great. Mother of that by 10 or 12, I come back next Sunday from Melbourne to be here. Amazing. 
and multiply that by a few thousand, that's the age to come. I hope you like singing. If you don't now, you will then. You will then. As all creation works, worships God and the Lamb. That's what John hears, and it blows him away. Well, we've seen the church on road to the church facing enormous pressure, like ours. And John wondered, as people always have, where is it all heading? Has God's cause been lost? His people have asked that question again and again through history. I'm reading Exodus my quiet times. They thought for a while the Egyptians have won. The Philistines have won. Babylon has won. Rome has won. The communists have won, it seems. You can think that sometimes. The world has won and we're just on the way out. But the church of both covenants are God's people who protect them and they will win. Just think of the church in what was once called the Soviet Union. That's gone now. Probably the most suffered church in history. 200,000 martyrs. 99% of all church buildings destroyed. The Soviet Union is no more. You cannot preach the gospel in Russia. The great writer G.K. Chesterton once said, at least five times the faith has, to all appearances, gone to the dogs. In each of these cases, it was the dog who died. And God's church in Australia and the Gold Coast won't die. No numbers will ev ebb and flow. Churches may sometimes be sold, become a cafe or even a mosque. But God will win. You're a church of what, two, three hundred? On the Gold Coast of, I read up, half a million people. You're a small minority. But God will win. In a land where more people tick the box, no religion, God will win. Maybe you find the Christian life pretty tough right now. Prayer is difficult. The job, hard, not bringing the money in. The marriage, not what it once was. The kids out of control. You have your doubts. Can I keep going? What's the future hold? Will Russia nuclear nuke Ukraine? Will China attack Taiwan? And my kids, what's the future of my kids in a country like this? How, how, will, I, how will they cope in Australia in 10, 20 years' time? God knows and ordains the future. His will is done on earth as in heaven. He will win. You're the redeemed. 
his priests. He's prepared for you a place of the new creation and the presence of Coomera Baptist Church. So preaching Christ and seeing lives transformed shows us that God will win. I don't know where all this anti-Christian feeling is going to end up. I don't know. I don't know whether China will invade Taiwan. I don't know what will happen with climate change. I, I don't know. I cannot tell. I cannot tell how he will win the nations, how he will claim his earthly heritage, how satisfy the needs and aspirations of east and west, of sinner and of sage. But this I know, or flesh shall see his glory, and he shall reap the harvest he has sown. And some glad day his sun shall shine in splendor when he, the Savior, Savior of the world, is known. I cannot tell how all the lands will worship when at his bidding every storm is stilled. Or who can say how great the jubilation when all the hearts of men with love are filled. But this I know, the skies will fill with rapture and myriad, myriad human voices sing and earth to heaven and heaven to earth will answer at last the saviour, saviour of the world is king. But this I know. Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. I know he's the ruler of all the kings of the earth. He rules history. His will is done on earth. He's promised. He's powerful. He's the lion and the lamb. And God always wins. And God's people said, Amen. Let me pray. We do thank you, Father, for stripping back the 